good afternoon to all of you. It's always good to be here, and it's always good to be in the festival season. We definitely are <clears throat> are in the season. My wife and I will be leaving Monday. Uh, we have a 6 a.m. flight and traveling to Hong Kong to visit several people there, and then down to the Philippines for atonement and New Zealand and Australia for the feast as well as visit the office down there in Adelaide. So we're looking forward to being there. We definitely are not looking forward to the actual flights. This is, uh, that is not uh, fun under the best of circumstances. But I know that many of you will be traveling. A lot of you are traveling out of the country this year, some over to Spain, some to uh, France, some to uh, Thailand, as well as uh, the United Kingdom and I'm sure a few other places around the the world. Please do remember all of our brethren, as was mentioned in the announcements. The uh, the situation in Puerto Rico is is quite serious. Uh, I heard on the news the other morning, uh, Geraldo Rivera was talking. Uh, He has family there, and I guess he's from there originally, but the country is really devastated, and they're not expecting electricity to be restored for months, literally, uh, because of the uh, the uh, infrastructure that is there uh, was pretty poor to start with, and they're essentially going to have to rebuild from the ground up. And so that could be a very difficult situation for our brethren there. And I know that uh, just before service is talking to somebody who has family there, and I, I imagine there are several people here who have a family in that part of the world. Mr. Arrego was in uh, Mexico City during the earthquake, but he has family apparently in Puerto Rico as well. So there are people, human beings who are suffering. I can only imagine what it must be like to be under rubble for several days uh, and having aftershocks and being trapped underground like that. Uh, That's got to be one of the worst nightmares that anybody could ever imagine. I I would imagine that for years they would have nightmares if uh, if they do survive it. So whether they're church members or not, it's a terrible thing, and I hope our hearts certainly go out to them. God is allowing these things. Remember what it says in Matthew, the 24th chapter, speaks of wars, rumors of wars, of course, false Christianity, uh, various plagues and earthquakes, and it says these are the beginning of sorrows, just the beginning of sorrows. And whether what we're seeing now with this cluster of disasters is really the beginning of something or if it's simply uh, coincidence and uh, we'll have a period of uh, respite for a while, we don't know yet. But this is kind of what we expect at some point in time. Uh, But uh, let's let's wait and see uh, just exactly where we are in prophecy and not jump to conclusions. The biblical festivals are celebrated by Jews, some Jews, as well as some professing Christians. There are more and more professing Christians that are observing the Feast of Tabernacles and the various uh, festivals. Uh, I'm not sure that they understand what they're doing. In fact, I'm pretty sure they don't. But they, they keep them not as obligations, but more as a curiosity sort of thing. Uh, neither Jews nor professing Christians really understand the meaning of these days. Yet there's one passage of Scripture that gives us the overview, one passage that gives us the clue 
as to the meaning of these days, of all of them in a broad general sense. That passage, because it is in the New Testament, is not on the radar screen for Jews, and that passage is totally misunderstood by professing Christianity and pretty much turned upside down to mean just the opposite of what it is saying by professing Christianity. So today I'm going to expound the portion of Scripture that gives us the key to understanding the festivals and the holy days. And that passage is a familiar one for us. It is Colossians, the second chapter, verses 16 and 17. Let's uh, turn over there and read that passage to start out with. And we're going to spend an awful lot of time in the book of Colossians today. Colossians 2. And I'd like to read, first of all, verse 8. It says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. And then down in verse 16. In other words, verse 8 says that there is a problem that Paul was addressing. And so Paul says concerning these problems, he says, So let no one judge you in food or in drink, or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. This, of course, is the New King James translation uh, that I've just read. Now, I'd like to go to some outside sources here for a very specific purpose, and that is to show that there are a number of commentaries that recognize the fact that what is spoken of in verse 16 and verse 17 are not related to or, or not specifically talking about the Old Testament. There are references they recognize, but they're not talking about the Old Testament laws of the Sabbath or of the uh, laws of clean and unclean meats. And it might surprise you that there are a number of commentaries that recognize that fact. Although I will say this, if you read the whole commentary on the subject, they all mess it up eventually and essentially are saying that we don't have to keep the Sabbaths, we don't have to keep the holy, uh, the, uh, the, the new moon, well, the new moons we don't, but uh, the, uh, the, the laws of clean and unclean meats. They all get back to that sooner or later. But they recognize that what is being spoken of here is more than Old Testament laws. For example, in uh, the first one that I'll read here, first commentary, and I hope you'll bear with me as I read a few of these, the Interpreter's Bible on page 138 of uh, volume 11, it says, the teaching was described by its proponents as a philosophy. So we're dealing with a philosophy that is the problem here in Colossians. Paul suggests that it would be better styled vain deceit, as we read there in verse 8, where he says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty or vain deceit. They made appeal, in some sense, to tradition, probably claiming for their system the support of a secret tradition handed down from remote antiquity giving it the glamour of an immemorial wisdom stemming from some ancient seer. The system itself seems to have rested upon a doctrine of angelic beings, and we'll see that as we go through 
of the sermon today called, quote, the elemental spirits of the universe. That's in verse 8. Now, in verse 8, there are several different or two different approaches when it says the basic principles of the world. Uh, A number of sources believe that it is referring to the elemental spirits of the universe or of the world, in other words, to angelic beings. There are others that think that it's referring to the ABCs of religion, uh, the the basic uh, uh, foundations or the very first things that you learn, like a child learning these ABCs of religion. Um, But there is obviously some reference to angels in the whole passage because in verse 18 it says, Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels. So there's something to that, and I think that the uh, translation elemental spirits of the world or of the universe certainly uh, has a great merit. It says, These spirits were held to be organized in a celestial hierarchy with titles to denote their several ranks. And then the commentary refers to chapter 1 and verse 16, where it speaks of... Uh, of uh, thrones, dominions, principalities, and authorities of a hierarchical structure. Now, notice this statement. They are taken to have important functions as mediators between man and the highest divinity, uh, which is, as it were, unfolded in them in their totality. They constitute the pleroma, or uh, pleroma, Uh, which is the word for fullness, and we'll look at that a little bit more as we go through. The full complement of divine activities and attributes. These offer men redemption, a sort of uh, uh, salvation by works approach. They offer men redemption, but in some sense not compatible with the Christian gospel, neither consisting in forgiveness of sin nor mediated through Christ in his passion and resurrection. Now, I know there's a lot of words there, and it's easy to get lost in them, but there are certain points that I want to emphasize as we go through here. Uh, That's from the Interpreter's Bible, uh, page 138 on uh, volume 11. Then also in uh, a commentary on the Pauline Epistles, page 399, a commentary on Pauline Epistles, page 399, it says the following. What were these false teachings threatening Colossae? And that's the question that we might have. Zahn thinks it is an extreme Judaistic heresy similar to that earlier threatening the Galatians. Lightfoot thinks it might be Essenism or the Essenes. So do some German scholars. But we, the individuals who were involved with the commentary on the Pauline epistles, but we, with most modern scholars, think it was Gnosticism. This Gnostic theory of aeons as intermediaries between God and man was a serious threat to the doctrine of Christ as the only intermediary between God and man. In other words, Christ is the only intermediary. But in the Gnostic religion, uh, it was Gnostic means gnosis or no knowledge. Uh, you had to have the knowledge of who these various angels were by name, and you could then pray to them to get up to the pleroma, uh, meaning God. 
that God is up here and man's down here, and you have a number of intermediaries to go through, and that Christ was simply the last of the intermediaries. It says, the Gnostic theory of aeons as intermediaries between God and man was a serious threat to the doctrine of Christ as the only intermediary between God and man. The fact that Paul emphasizes the person and work of Christ in this letter as nowhere else in his writings is strong evidence that Gnosticism is a heresy to be combated there. Now, the New Bible Commentary Revised uh, also looks to Gnosticism as being the problem for the Colossians. And on page 1139 of the New Bible Commentary Revised, it says, the other problem relates to the supposed allusions in the epistle to the Gnostic ideas of the second century. Now, remember, this was written in the first century. Gnosticism really developed more fully in the second century. But it makes this statement. It should here be noted that a distinction needs to be drawn between incipient or early development Gnosticism and fully developed Gnosticism. There are no doubt points of contrast with the former, but not with the latter. In other words, Gnosticism didn't come from nowhere. It didn't just rise up in the second century. It had earlier roots. Like most movements, it starts slowly and and builds and eventually uh, becomes more full-blown. And so the New Bible Commentary Revised is saying that, that there were early uh, tendencies toward Gnostic ideas, even in the first century, and they believe that that is the problem here in Colossae. Uh, on page 1140, it says, in view of the great stress that Paul places on Christology, uh, that is the person or the work of Christ, in this epistle, it is reasonable to suppose that the false teaching was defective in this respect. Gnosticism in the second century supplied a parallel in which Christ had become so far deteriorated that he had become no more than the last of a long series of intermediaries connecting man with God. And then a little earlier, on page 1130, in the same source, New Bible Commentary Revised, it says, It is clear from this brief survey that some kind of syncretistic movement was on foot and was threatening to affect the Colossians. A syncretism is just simply a word that means that there is a blending of ideas. Uh, the sense is blending of various Jewish ideas, as they would see it, or biblical ideas, with various pagan ideas. And we'll see that uh, explained here in a little bit. It says... There are features which show parallels in Gnosticism, and it may be surmised, therefore, that this was a kind of pre-Gnostic, Gnosticizing tendency. An example of the confluence of Jewish and Hellenistic, or Greek, uh, culture ideas, more contemporary with the apostolic period, is to be seen in the Qumran community, whose library contained manuscripts of Gentile origin. The community itself, however, remained essentially Jewish. Now, getting to the the Qumran community, that uh, gets back to the Essenes, which were a very, very strict sect of uh, Jews, uh, extremely uh, strict, much more than than Pharisees or others. Uh, I think that one thing that we, we need to understand 
is that the Bible does not explain exactly in terms of naming a group that it was this group of people. Uh, there are both Gentile and Jewish elements to this. And I think that we have to take what the Bible says and accept that and not get so focused on coming up with a name of exactly who was at fault. But there were certainly Gnostic ideas involved. There were Jewish ideas involved. Uh, there were ascetic ideas, uh, meaning, um, you know, very, very strict, uh, not having anything to do with uh, the enjoyment of, of anything physical. Now, let's go through the book of Colossians, uh, the first couple chapters, and let's try to pick up what it is actually saying here and what we might learn from it. It begins by saying that the author is Paul, who is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. God was one that appointed Paul. He wasn't appointed by man, but by God. And Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. Now, we take certain things for granted, but I remember a question came up uh, since I've been here in Charlotte. Somebody had written the question. I don't think it was a member here. I believe it was uh, somebody out in the field someplace. I'm not even sure if it was a member or just a, a, you know, a subscriber. Uh, but either way, some new people don't understand these things. When you grow up in a Catholic background or some other uh, Protestant groups that are closer to Catholicism, you think of saints as being someone very special. Well, all saints are special, but uh, you are the saints of God. In fact, in the Old Testament, it refers to the saints in more of the, the sense of physical Israel. But here, we're speaking in the, the New Testament of the saints, meaning the members of, of the church of God. Uh, we, we are all saints, and that's how it's used here. It says, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a typical introduction by the Apostle Paul, indicating that God the Father and Jesus Christ are there, but it never mentions the Holy Spirit as a person. That's one of the proofs that the Holy Spirit is not a person. It's just when you look at all of Paul's epistles, uh, all but one or two use this, uh, this introduction and it's always grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints. I hope that we remember to pray for all the saints, for all of God's people, wherever they may be. Because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. Uh, the hope that is laid up there, not that we go to heaven, but is laid up or stored there, of, uh, of which you heard before the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it is also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. Now, it's mentioning the, the grace of God, and it's, it we'll see here as we go through that it, it begins to exalt the office of Jesus Christ. He says, as you also learn from Epaphras, uh, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Apparently, Paul had not been to Colossae. Uh, it makes that clear a little bit later on. 
but Epaphras was probably the individual who brought the gospel to these people, uh, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. He brought back word to us. Verse 9, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Now, this is beginning to bring out certain concepts. The Apostle Paul uh, brings certain words out. For example, knowledge. We will see that word over and over again. With all knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. That you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. There it is again. Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. There again, the saints. Uh, he has delivered us from the power of darkness. The power of darkness. Notice he mentions power here of darkness. Not the power of God, but of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. Now, this was a passage of Scripture that was used by Worldwide to say that the kingdom of God is here, that the kingdom is in us. And yet, when you compare that with other passages, for example, you could hold your place here and turn back a page or so to uh, Philippians 3 and verse 20. It says, Our citizenship is in heaven. So we are citizens of the kingdom. Our citizenship is stored in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're waiting for him to come back from heaven, not that we're going to heaven, uh, although uh, I don't want to get into that subject, but certainly I do believe, as Mr. Ames has brought out, that we are going to stand on the sea of glass. And I, I think that sometimes we have people who just refuse to accept that because... I think in years gone by, we said the reward is not to go to heaven. Well, we're still saying that. The reward is not to go to heaven. But does that mean that when we are spirit beings that we cannot visit the Father in heaven? Uh, again, I, I don't want to get into that too much, but uh, I, I just want everybody to know that I certainly agree with the church's doctrine on that subject. And I, I find all the rationalizations around it uh, you have to ask why. Why is there such hostility to that idea? Uh, portable thrones here and there and all kinds of things we can see in television. I, I've heard all kinds of crazy things that have come up because people simply don't want to accept what uh, God seems to have shown his leadership concerning that. So our citizenship is in heaven. It's reserved there from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I have citizenship. I have dual citizenship. Uh, my citizenship is reserved in Washington and in Ottawa. Uh, not everybody who is a, a citizen of the United States uh, you know, lives in Washington. We, we, that's where our citizenship is reserved. That's where the paperwork, you might say, is. That's where uh, we, we know that we are citizens of. Or, for example, I'm a citizen of... Uh, Canada, but I'm not in Canada right now. So when it says our citizenship is in heaven, it does not mean that that's where we are. In 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 20, 
2 Corinthians 5 and verse 20. As it says here, therefore, I'm sorry, verse 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. So we are ambassadors for Christ. And an ambassador uh, for a particular nation usually is living in another nation. Our ambassador to Russia, our ambassador to China, our ambassador to uh, wherever it might be, to Japan. So uh, when we, we go through this in Colossians, it's saying that we have been uh, delivered. He's delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, into Christ's kingdom. It doesn't necessarily mean that we are spirit beings as yet or that the kingdom of God is amongst us in the sense of of uh, uh, dwelling in our hearts, as, as some mistranslate that passage in uh, one of the Gospels. It says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now, this is beginning to show the, the power of Christ, the greatness of Christ, that it is in him that we have redemption through his blood, which is the forgiveness of sins. This is how our sins are forgiven, through his blood. The shedding of his blood. He is the image, verse 15, of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. Could that be said of, of anyone else? Is there any angel? That, that could be said of. When you read the book of Hebrews, the first chapter, it makes it very clear that, that none of the angels uh, fulfilled the office of Jesus Christ, that he is far above any angel. And here uh, Paul is explaining in verse 16 that he was over all thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers because he was the one that made them, that created them. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. The word body there is from Soma. He is the head of the body, the church. In other words, the church uh, is the body of Christ. He is the head of the church. He worked through a physical body when he was on this earth. He is working through a spiritual body. Uh, made up of physical human beings here, uh, right now. He is working through us, but he is the head of the body, the head of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. So we see the exaltation of Christ in these words that are given here. Verse 19, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. Now, the word fullness there comes from the Greek uh, pleroma. And it, it means the fullness uh, in, in, in translation here. But in Gnostic thought, the idea was that the, the word pleroma was a reference to God, to the, the great all-powerful one, whatever they thought uh, that was. And so it is interesting that the word is used a couple times here by the Apostle Paul, it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. 
and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. So it is Jesus Christ that reconciles us to God, and he is fully capable of doing so. And when you think of that in context of the worship of angels and principalities and powers and so forth that that he's eventually going to get into here, you begin to see why the Apostle Paul is laying the groundwork, the framework for what he is going to say later on. Verse 21, it says, And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. So he has reconciled us. This is not something that we have to keep going through a lot of intermediaries to be there, but he has reconciled us to the Father and the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Our sins have been forgiven. He died for us once and for all. And our sins were wiped out at baptism. And Jesus Christ is at the right hand of the Father, and he is interceding on our behalf continually. It says, In the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, so we must continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard. So if you get caught up in these heresies, which he's going to present here in a a few minutes here as we'll get to it, he says, uh, you know, if you get caught up in that, then that's a different matter. But if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel, there is the hope of the gospel, the resurrection, the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection to eternal life, which you heard which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Verse 24, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. The word body, again, is soma. And we see that his body is the church. And we saw earlier that he is the head of the body of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. The mystery, verse 26. And that's important here because the idea of of the Gnostics had to do with, it was a mystery religion as there were other mystery religions. There was some mystical knowledge that you had to have. And without that, uh, you, you would not be able to to reach the highest power, the the Pleroma, or God, uh, of which I became a minister according to stewardship, in verse 26, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. So the mystery he's talking about is, is the mystery of God's purpose for mankind, but it's kind of slamming, you might say, the idea of the uh, the Gnostics or whoever these people were, that had special knowledge or thought they did. Verse 27, To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So this part of the mystery that he's talking about is Christ living his life in us. That's a mystery that the world doesn't really fully comprehend. They may use those words, they may talk about that, 
but would Christ live a sinful way of life in us? Of course not. He's going to live a righteous life within us. And, and so Christ living his life in us by the power of the Holy Spirit, Dr. Mary's favorite scripture, Galatians 2.20. Uh, Christ is living in us. And that is a mystery, or was a mystery to the Gentiles, and it's a mystery to the world in general today. It says, Him, Christ, we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. So through Christ Jesus, every man can be made perfect before God. To this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. In other words, he had not been there. Epaphras was the one who apparently took the word to the Colossians. And they may not have seen him in the flesh, but they knew of him. They'd heard of him. Obviously, he was the apostle to the Gentiles. And so he's writing to them and to those in Laodicea, where apparently some of these same things had gotten started. But he says, I have great conflict for you. I'm concerned about you. Uh, That Verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge, there's that word again, of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. So there are words that are used over and over here. Knowledge, wisdom, mystery, fullness, so forth, understanding. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So in in Christ Jesus uh, and in God the Father, that's where the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge will be found. There's again that word in verse 3, knowledge. Verse 4, now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. So now he's beginning to focus more on what the heresies are. he's, He's kind of defined them already without saying these are heresies. He's contradicting the heresies. But now he's beginning to focus on the fact that you are uh, having the, the you, meaning Colossians, are having a problem with heretics. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. So oftentimes heresy comes with persuasive words. It sounds good on the surface. I'm always amazed when someone decides to leave the church, and it happens from time to time, not every day or every week or every month, but from time to time somebody will leave the church and they never take time to talk to the ministry in advance. I say never. That's not exactly right. Some, some do, but most of the time they don't. They read something online. They get a paper from someone. They read it. They get all hung up in it. They get so convinced that it's true that they leave the church and explain why. And by that time, we have no opportunity to point out where they are wrong. I'll give you an example. Uh, the, uh, we had a, a minister one time who got hung up on the, the young earth theory, thought that everything is 6,000 years of age. And the reason he thought that was, was because in Exodus, the 20th chapter, and uh, Deuteronomy 5, it says, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and all things that is in them, uh, and, and used that expression. 
But he did not realize he was not an ambassador-trained minister or a living university-trained minister, although this was before um, the, the church here. Uh, nevertheless, he, uh, before living university, uh, he, he got hung up on the fact that the word made, did not realize that there's a difference between the word made and create, bara and asa. Two different words, and one has to do even with the New Bible, uh, not New Bible, but the uh, theological word book of the Old Testament shows that the one create uh, has the sense of ex nihilio, in other words, out of nothing, that there was an original creation. And the word made means to shape out of pre-existing material. And so it was a very simple thing that if he had come to us early on, before he got so locked into this position, we could have explained where he had gone astray. But so often people don't do that. They, they, they get something in their mind, and then there's not much you can do to help them. And uh, it's like one fellow, one place, came up with a, such a strange idea that he admitted there is no church of God on the face of the earth that believes what he believes. <coughs> Yet he believes that he's right. And he's out there all by himself. It's amazing how, how <clears throat> I'll put it the way it is, arrogant human nature can be. And I say human nature because we're all afflicted with human nature. And we can become arrogant as, as well. That's me, that's you. We can all have our, our shortcomings in that way. But Paul wanted them not to be deceived. He says, now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. There are very persuasive words for uh, or arguments that people have. I, I'm, I'm reminded, I hate to even bring it up because I don't want don't to send somebody out there uh, trying to prove these things in the wrong way. But um, from time to time, we have to deal with the argument of calendar issues. And uh, one of our ministers uh, many years ago, Mr. Mr. Beiersdorfer, told me that uh, he'd, he'd heard all these arguments on calendars. And he said, I, I read a paper, and he said it really made sense. And then I read another paper, he said, and it really made sense. But it didn't agree with the first paper. And I read the third paper, and it really made sense. But it didn't agree with the other two. And he realized that you can make a persuasive argument, but it doesn't mean that it is a correct argument. And he realized that it is, uh, the gospel is not about a calendar, which is the right calendar, but the, the gospel uh, and, and the work of the church is to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God to all the world, to warn the world of what is to come, what is happening in our world today the Ezekiel warning message. We have a job to do, and that job is not to convince everybody which calendar is right. And Mr. Armstrong settled that a long, long time ago and recognized that if you try to construct a calendar out of the Bible alone, and I know that people say you can, I, I, I've got questions they cannot answer. They have to make assumptions. And when you make one assumption, if that assumption is wrong, then the whole thing falls apart. About the only thing that these calendar people agree on is that whatever we teach is wrong. They don't agree with each other, but they all agree that we're wrong, even though they disagree with each other as well. 
Now, there are persuasive arguments that can be made. And the Apostle Paul says that. He says, this I say, verse 4, lest anyone should deceive you. And a deceived person doesn't know that he's deceived. Lest someone, anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. You are staying steadfast in your faith in Christ. Verse 6, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving, as you have been taught. I hope all of us have proved where God is working. I, I love it the way that uh, one of our ministers put it. He said, when you have the truth, why go looking on the Internet for better truth? Either you have the truth or you don't. If we have the truth, then we don't, don't need to go looking for it. It's going to be here. And the church is the the, the foundation of the truth. What is that? Uh, let me just, I, I could go over there. As a second Timothy, I always get mixed up whether it's, First or Second Timothy, um, it's First Timothy three. Yes, verses fourteen and fifteen. These things I write to you, First <clears throat> Timothy three fourteen. Though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar. The ground, or as Mr. Meredith used to always say, the, the bulwark of the truth. That which holds up and uh, encompasses the truth. The church of God is the pillar and the ground of truth. That is scripture. That's what the scripture says. Now, getting back to Colossians, uh, he says here in verse uh, 7, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught. So if we know that this is where God is working, then unless we go totally off the the rail, which worldwide did, of course, but uh, unless something like that happens, then we need to recognize that this is where God is going to be working. As you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Now he gets right to it in verse 8. He says, Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. This is a very important passage of Scripture. And without going to the commentaries yet, I'm going to in a moment, but let's just stop there and look at it because... Our, our, our proof is not commentaries. They, they may uh, point out, as, as I've shown here, that even the commentaries recognize that the issue is not the Old Testament. The issue is some kind of a heresy, a syncretism between pagan ideas or philosophical ideas of, of Greek philosophy and of uh, the truth of the Bible, that they're, they're mixing some things. There are some problems there. So that's the reason I'm bringing some of those things out But the truth is going to be found right here in the Scriptures. And so let's take apart verse 8. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy. Now, 
the religion of uh, professing Christianity is based in Greek philosophy. It just is. And I think I've read some of those sources to you. If I haven't here, I'm sure I will at some point in time. But people like Origen and Tertullian and uh, Justin Martyr and various other ones, uh, they borrowed from uh, Greek philosophy, uh, Philo. Uh, in, he was born in the latter part of the first century B.C., and about 80 B.C., and lived to about 50-something uh, A.D. or, or uh, uh, B.C.E., before the common, not, not B.C.E., but uh, whatever it is. Uh, in other words, A.D. I'll go back to the original that, <clears throat> that I was taught when I was young. But he, he lived in the first uh, part of the, the first century so that he was a contemporary of Christ. And he blended uh, Greek philosophy and religion. And so much of this went on. And so it speaks here in verse 8 of philosophy, cheat you through philosophy. Philosophy is not the answer. It is not the source that we would go to. And philosophy is not the Old Testament. Let's make that point very clear. Whatever it's talking about here is philosophy and empty deceit. Now, would anybody say that the Sabbath and the holy days and clean and unclean meats are philosophy and empty deceit? Even if they were, quote, done away with, would we say that that's the source of philosophy or would we say that it came from God? Let's go on. It says, according to the tradition of men. Are the laws of clean and unclean meats the tradition of men? Uh, It says, according to the basic principles of the world. Now, whether it's speaking of basic principles, meaning the ABCs, uh, going back to kindergarten, or whether it's talking about elemental spirits, they are of the world or of the universe, as some translations have it, and that does not fit with the Old Testament. In other words, the laws of clean and unclean meats, the laws of the Sabbath and the holy days are not of the world, but were given by God. When you go back to Leviticus 23, it says, these are the feasts of the Lord. And when you read about the laws of clean and unclean meats, they go way before the Jews. It goes all the way back very clearly. Uh, the first reference is in, uh, what, the seventh chapter of, of Genesis, where Noah was to take aboard the ark uh, to each of the unclean and pairs of seven or seven pairs of the clean animals, some say seven animals, some say pairs. I think pairs seems to be the, the case of the clean animals. No doubt they may have ate, eaten some on the ark. And certainly afterward, they sacrificed one, and uh, they had to have animals that they would be able to eat after that. So <clears throat> the laws of clean and unclean meats came from God, not from men. They're not of the world. They're not according to philosophy. They're not the tradition of men. So it says, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. So it's contrasting Christ and all this other stuff, traditions, philosophy, uh, etc. Now, let me read a couple commentaries since we've covered that. Uh, That verse, from our perspective, what we know 
uh, verse 9, uh, let me read that in verse 10 uh, before I go to the commentaries, but it says, For in him, that is in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So the pleroma, which was the, the Gnostic idea of God uh, being the fullness there, uh, it's saying here that all the fullness of, of, of God is, is in Christ Jesus. And so that word fullness again comes up and again indicates that perhaps some kind of Gnostic ideas were blended in here, whether it came from Jews or Gentiles or whoever it came from. Some of those ideas that eventually became full-blown Gnosticism were a part of uh, the, the problem that was here. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him. You don't have to go through all these intermediaries, as we shall see, but you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Christ is the head of all these angels and all principalities, all powers, whether they be righteous angels or whether they be demonic spirits. Uh, He is the one that actually created them uh, from the beginning, created them as uh, angels to serve. Uh, God, And then, of course, some did go astray and became demons, but he was the one that created them, as we read, read in verse 15, 16, 17 there of the first chapter. All these things were created by him. Now let's take a look at these verses, verses 8 to 10, <clears throat> from, uh, first of all, the, the Interpreter's Bible, at page 190 on volume 11. <clears throat> it says the phrase, empty deceit, in verse 8, need not imply insincerity, and charlatanism in the Colossians teachers, Colossian teachers. In other words, they may have been very sincere. They were more probably trying to harmonize Christianity with the prevailing religious outlook of the pagan culture, which had molded their own thinking before the gospel came to them. So they were taking their background and trying to blend that together, at least that's what this commentary is saying, that they... They were, um, perhaps this was was what was going on, not saying absolutely, but he says uh, they were more probably trying to harmonize Christianity with the prevailing religious uh, outlook of the pagan culture, which had molded their own thinking before the gospel came to them. And so they were blending. This was a syncretism. In other words, these sources are showing us that this isn't just about clean and unclean meats. It's not just about the Sabbath or the holy days. There is something else that is going on here, and they recognize that. It says they may well have been unaware that their attempted synthesis of Christian and pagan ideas was destroying the unique and liberating power of the new faith in Christ. Now, I find that rather remarkable because these sources eventually try to do away with the Sabbath and the holy days, but they recognize that we're dealing with something here that is not just Old Testament. Notice uh, from the New Bible Commentary Revised. It says, It was believed that the pleroma, pleroma, the fullness, was so transcendent, in other words, beyond normal or physical human experience, that it was necessary for a long succession of intermediaries to connect man with God of which the last in the succession was Christ. 
So there's a whole lot that the Apostle Paul is, is no doubt referring to, and we, we, we have to infer it from what he said. He didn't say, this is a, quote, Gnostic heresy. This is a heresy of the Essenes. This is a heresy of total paganism, or this is a heresy of uh, various Jewish groups. He didn't say that. Uh, we have to infer what the problem was from what he is describing here, which the Colossians knew. They knew exactly what he was talking about. But we're looking in from the outside, and we're trying to figure it out. And so some people take verses 16 and 17 totally out of context and try to say, uh, don't let anybody tell you to keep the Sabbath or holy days or, or whatever, uh, or tell you that there are meats that you shouldn't eat. They, they take that totally out of the context of what the apostle is saying and what even... Uh, Individuals that writing commentaries who do not accept the truth, who do not know the truth, who do not keep the Sabbath, in, in at least most cases that I'm aware of, um, it's, it, even they recognize there's more to this. Let's continue, verse 11. It says, in him, that is in Christ. So it's, it's all talking about what Christ has done for us. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So the heresy probably involved circumcision. And he's saying here that, that you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. It wasn't a physical circumcision, but a circumcision of the heart. Now, the term circumcised of heart, uh, you can go back to the Old Testament. There are numerous references in the Old Testament, I say numerous, Probably five or six references. I had a chain reference at one time, but I don't remember where I start the chain reference. Uh, but but you know, one place after another, where it's talking about circumcised of heart in the Old Testament, not just the New Testament. But he is showing here that uh, in Him, in Christ, we were circumcised with uh, a, a spiritual circumcision, uh, the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. One of the commentaries uses this and compares it with verse 12 and is saying that baptism isn't necessary. And yet when you look at the totality of the New Testament, uh, baptism certainly is necessary. But the point being here is that baptism must be of the heart as well. Baptism is something that you can't just go through a ritual and say, well, I'm, I'm there, I've arrived. I've gone through the initiation, kind of like in a frat uh, a fraternity, where you go through an initiation ceremony. Thankfully, God gives us uh, something that's a whole lot easier than what sometimes people go through in these fraternities. But it cannot be an initiation that way. It must be a, a, a putting off of the, the sins of the flesh, and it must be of the mind. We must be buried. We must put to death the old man. And that's something that in the latest Living Church News, uh, I, I have two articles there, the first uh, two articles there, and I'm talking about that, not, not in those exact terms, but the point being that we must continue to grow and we can't sit back and say, I'm baptized, so now, therefore, everything that comes out of my, my mind or comes into my mind or comes out of my mouth is right. 
And it's interesting because, as was brought out in the sermonette, you look for, uh, for, for themes. And I was a bit shocked when I read Mr. Nathan's article on Jonah, uh, not because it was a heresy, but because he was talking about some of the same things. When you, when you look at it, I, I asked my wife if she brought it with her. She didn't because I would have brought it up here and shown you that, that he's saying the same things among, I mean, he's saying a lot of other things, but, but there's a certain portion of that article that focuses on the same thing. That we have to, to grow. We have to, we, we have to learn more of God's way. We have to think as God thinks. As Dr. Meredith used to say, we need to, to, uh, I never can say it the way he did, but, but uh, think what God thinks, do what God does, and there are about three or four things. But in other words, what, what God thinks and wants us to do, that's what we need to do. And that's a process, as Mr. Nathan brought out. There were 40 days for Nineveh to repent. It's a process. It doesn't happen all at once. And that's why we have to be patient with one another, because some people have grown over a longer period of time, and you have new people that may not understand everything. But we have to be patient with one another and recognize that uh, there it is a growth process. But at the same time, it must be a process of growth. We cannot be here for 30 or 40 years and say, well, I've learned everything. I don't think very many of us think that. But sometimes the biggest problems are staring us right in the face. They're right there in the mirror. But they're the things that we've hung on to for the longest period of time. We want to change something else. God, show me what's wrong with me, but don't show me what's what I like. Uh, let me hang on to those things, but show me something that's easy to overcome. It's interesting how we, we judge ourselves and how we judge others. If somebody else, I've used this example in the past, if a woman is a very meticulous housekeeper and has children, she will rationalize that uh, some other woman, I don't mean to pick on ladies because men do the same things in different ways, but she's going to look at some other uh, woman who's a terrible housekeeper. And yet that woman says, well, I may not be the best housekeeper, but I sure show my children time. I give my children the attention. And so one is giving all this time and attention to the children, although maybe both are doing the same, who knows. But she's thinking, uh, I'm more righteous because I uh, am a good mother, but the fact that I'm a lousy housekeeper, well, that's unimportant. But the, the good housekeeper thinks, this is really, I give my kids a clean house. I may not have time to read them a bed night story or bedtime stories, but I give them a clean house. And, and what we do is the things that we naturally enjoy or the things that we naturally find easy, we esteem those things. And the things that are more difficult, we kind of shrug off as not that important. And this is our nature. This is our human nature. We have to look at the things that sometimes we don't want to do. And we have to analyze ourselves. We have to consider how we're thinking and begin to savor the things of God. Let's get back to the passage here. In verse 11, In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made with hands, 
That is the putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And baptism is the beginning. Baptism is something that we go through, but it has to be from the heart. That's the point that I'm trying to make here. And it has to be a continuous process of mortifying the deeds of the flesh, mortifying, putting putting to death those parts of our character that uh, we we love and we want to hang on to. Verse 13, and you being dead and trespass, your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. So very clearly, uh, at least a large portion of the congregation, uh, if, if not entirely, but a large portion of it was uncircumcised. They were Gentiles. He has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now, I'd like to read again just from another source, or in this case, the New Bible Commentary Revised, to show what it's talking about because there are those who say that this is nailing the law to the cross. I read that in one commentary on this subject. actually stated that, that the, the, the law of God is nailed to the cross. Not our sins, but the law. And yet, New Bible Commentary revised as one of several commentaries that will explain this, that he, Paul, uses the metaphor of a bond, chirographon, which Mule describes as an IOU, a statement of indebtedness which had to be signed by the debtor as an acknowledgement of his debt. The debt was impossible to pay. Well, the debt, of course, brings uh, death. Moreover, it was backed by legal demands since every trespass is a violation of the law of God. The only hope was for someone to cancel the debt. Paul imagines God taking the statement of debts and nailing it to the cross of Christ. The debt of our sins is nailing our sins to the cross of Christ, the stake of Christ. A vivid way of saying that the death of Christ is the basis of God's forgiveness of man's sins. This is the foundation or the basis of forgiveness. Not as these uh, individuals who are promoting the heresy to Colossae uh, of some asceticism and all the things that they were doing and going through various angels. Having disarmed principalities and powers, verse 15, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them, over them in it. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So this is the part that people take out of context. But as we've already seen, even The commentaries recognize that it's not simply talking about clean and unclean meats. In fact, let's just uh, note that here. I'll read uh, uh, several of them here. The Interpreter's Bible says, On the practical side, this transcendental doctrine issued issued in an artificial asceticism. Asceticism, that's self-disciplined, uh, and uh, strictly self-disciplined and avoiding any sensuous pleasure or luxuries. That's simple definition of it. Uh, so it issued in a, a uh, an artificial asceticism, coupled with 
the bondage of a Pharisaic legalism. Not that it was the Pharisees, but a Pharisaic type legalism. Here we meet with traces of Jewish influence. The leaders of the new cult judged men in respect of eating and drinking and in the manner of festival, new moon, and Sabbath. Now, if you didn't hear the rest of that statement, let this sink in. It imposed dietary obligations which went beyond the requirements of the Jewish code. Now, the word Jewish code is, is a reference to Old Testament laws. Uh, yes, the Jews observe certain things, but these are the laws of God, not the Jews. It says, since they applied not only to food, but to drink, and it prescribed ritual observances of the sacred seasons of the Jewish calendar. Further, it had codified some of its legal requirements in a set of taboos. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Again, which again, notice this, which again go far beyond any of the prohibitions of the Jewish law. It seems likely also that it required its adherents to be circumcised. This is implied by the language in 2.11. That was from the Interpreter's Bible. Let me read. That was page 138. I'll read page 200 or a portion of it. The questions of food and drink are probably requirements to abstain from eating flesh and drinking wine. So, in other words, vegetarianism and drinking wine. Festival, new moon, Sabbath, denote yearly, monthly, and weekly cultic uh, rites, respectively. Uh, there are clear indications here of a strain of Jewish influence in the Colossian syncretism. But these prohibitions and ritual observances are not harnessed to a Pharisaic legalism or even uh, to the worship of the one God, but to the propitiation of the elemental spirits. This is what is behind it all, the elemental spirits, as they interpret that expression, the rudiments of the world or elements of the world. The prohibitions go beyond anything in the Jewish law in touching drink as well as food. And, note this, it is probable that these requirements were not based upon any distinction of clean and unclean foods, but on principles of asceticism. No such principles enter into the Jewish food laws. So here is an outside source that is saying that uh, it has nothing to do with clean and unclean. It has to do with other things, asceticism of do not touch, taste, handle, and so forth, which the Bible uh, describes there a little bit. The New International Commentary, F.F. Bruce, the Jewish food laws did not extend to beverages, but here... The reference is to more stringent regulations of an ascetic nature, perhaps involving the renunciation of animal flesh and of wine and strong drink. So there's a second source that says the same thing. The uh, critical and experimental commentary of Jameson, volume 6, page 448, refers to the word Sabbaths, and it says it is not the Sabbath, but it says Sabbaths. And what this source says of the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Tabernacles end with the Jewish services to which they belong. In other words, it, what this source is saying, I'll just paraphrase it, it is saying that the, the weekly Sabbath is permanent. Well, actually it says that. The weekly Sabbath is permanent. But it's saying it's doing away with the holy days. Now, 
you might say, well, okay, the Jewish Sabbath is permanent, but then you read on, and this source believes that it's been changed to what they call the Lord's Day or Sunday. So this source misses it all together. But uh, it actually upholds the Sabbath in this, which many other sources do not. Notice, as we uh, read through here again, Let's read verses 16 and 17 again. It says, so let no one judge you. Now, the way this is always presented is that, okay, you're a believer in the Sabbath and the holy days and so forth. Stop judging me. But isn't it those individuals who are judging us in most cases? Uh, He says, let no one judge you. He's speaking to the Colossians there. He says, don't let any man judge you in food or in drink, or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, or of Sabbaths, or, or Sabbaths. Verse 17, which are a shadow of things to come. A shadow of things to come. The way that this is spoken in Protestantism is that, well, these are just mere shadows. Unimportant. They're just mere shadows. But the substance is of Christ. The problem with it is that the word substance, even in my margin, says literally body. But the body of Christ. The word is, in the old King James, is in italics, uh, recognizing that something's missing there. But the body of Christ. So if you read it in this way from verse 16, so let no one judge you but the body of Christ. In other words, the church is to instruct us how we observe these days, what we are to do, what we're not to do. That's where the instruction is coming from. He says, don't and let some man come along, anyone come along you and, and judge you regarding what you eat or what you drink, regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. There are shadows of things to come, but the body of Christ. Let the body of Christ determine these things. Now, let's continue to read verse 18. Let no one... So let no one, as it said in verse 16, he he continues that theme, let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head. What is the head of the body? That's Christ, not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. So therefore, it says, verse 20, if you died with Christ from the basic principles or the elemental spirits of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourselves to regulations? Not to the laws of God, but to these regulations that were brought in there. Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with using according to the commandments, notice the commandments and the doctrines of men. Not according to the Old Testament laws that were given by God, uh, but here it's talking about things that are according to the commandments and the doctrines of men. This is why it can't be uh, talking about the laws of God, it's, uh, the laws of God may be involved there as they are corrupted by these individuals, but the corruption comes from the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. 
So how are the Sabbaths and the festivals a shadow of things to come? This is the title of the sermon, is Shadow of Things to Come. How are the Sabbath and the festivals a shadow of things to come? Well, we know that the Sabbath looks back to creation, but it also looks forward, doesn't it, to the thousand-year reign of Christ on this earth, the 7,000-year plan. What about the holy days and the festivals? The Passover is a huge example of foreshadowing a future event. The coming of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. Even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Unleavened bread is a type, as we know, it foreshadows our coming out of sin, putting sin out of our lives. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 8. We are to get rid of the unleavened bread of malice and wickedness and replace it with the I'm sorry, we're to get rid of the leavened bread of malice and wickedness and replace it with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. We see that on the last day of unleavened bread, when they walked through the Red Sea, that was a type of baptism. First uh, Corinthians ten, verses one to four. We see that Pentecost was the time when God poured out his Holy Spirit to write his law in our hearts and on our minds. So we see that being foreshadowed. Now, what's interesting is that the remainder of the holy days, beginning with the day before yesterday, the Feast of Trumpets, have yet to be fulfilled. They, these law, these uh, uh, holy days and festivals foreshadow for us future events. Three of the events, you might say, have already gone by us, Passover, Unleavened Bread, and Pentecost and all the lessons that we can learn from, of which there are a multitude of lessons from those days. But now we're looking forward into the future. And so why would it make sense that people recognize that Christ was crucified on the Passover, that he is our Passover lamb? They recognize that being foreshadowed. Uh, They don't really recognize unleavened bread that much. But Pentecost, they realized that that was the coming of the Holy Spirit. But then... Before the festivals are even halfway through, they throw the rest out and say that, well, they're just mere shadows. They're unimportant. Well, they're important enough that if you don't keep these days, you don't understand them. That was brought home to me some years ago when a very dear friend who had gone some other direction and went to an independent uh, group uh, didn't want to explain the holy days the way we do, had to come up with some new truth about the Feast of Tabernacles and how each day symbolized thus and such and get to the last great day and I don't remember what it symbolized, but it wasn't what we understand. And this individual then uh, started explaining, you, you can only hear the same old sermons so many times. And then began to explain how a relative who is a very fine individual You know, we were so self-righteous. We didn't think that uh, these people would be saved. And just because somebody has a wrong day doesn't mean that they wouldn't be saved. And I had to explain that it isn't just the wrong day. It it is all the wrong days that they're keeping, uh, all, you know, Christmas, Easter, Sunday. And they're rejecting the days that God has given us. And they believe in the immortality of the soul and going to heaven and hell and all the rest of it, it's a whole package that they've accepted. 
But when you stop keeping the holy days or you start going into some sort of an independent group that thinks they have to come up with some new truth, you lose the understanding. These are shadows of things to come. We know what the Feast of Trumpets is all about. We just had that, the Day of Atonement. We look forward to the time when Satan is removed. The Feast of Tabernacles and the last great day. And we see that these days are going to be observed during the millennium. Zechariah 14 will be read, no doubt, at least once, if not several times, during the feast, showing that after Christ returns, that he's going to have people keeping that time. And the reason it mentions the Feast of Tabernacles is because that is the time that they're entering into. He didn't say, I'm going to have them come up to keep the Passover, which they, of course, will. They'll have to keep the Passover. But the Feast of Tabernacles is at the beginning of that time in Zechariah 14. And so it is the beginning of the millennium, and he's showing what it is that uh, <clears throat> with a festival that, that portrays that time. The very key to understanding the festivals and the holy days of God is found in Colossians 2, 16 and 17. That these days are shadows of things to come. They foreshadow. They point to different things that are yet to come. That is a key. And if we look at that as, well, they're just mere shadows and not important, then we're not going to understand these days. But if we understand the intent of the passage, we recognize how important these days are. But when we think about it, Satan hates these days. He hates what they mean. And so it's no wonder that he's taking, taken the very key to our understanding of the meaning of all of them and deceived mankind regarding it. So let's try to understand this in the right way. I, I hope all of you can see that there's more to this than what the world says. I think if you didn't, you wouldn't be here. But let's understand that we stand on very firm ground, not just from us, what we say. Uh, we, we start with what we teach, but even commentaries written by human men recognize that this passage has a lot more to do with uh, syncretism, the bringing in of false ideas, than it has to do with doing away with Old Testament laws.